Our sermon text today is 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. This is a passage that deals with a meal. Now many of us, a week ago Thursday, had a special celebratory meal. On Thanksgiving Day, I was in Oklahoma at Aaron's grandfather's house, and it was a wonderful time as we gathered together. There were grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters, and we had a wonderful time gathering together at that table to share in that meal. As I'm sure is often the case for many of you when you gather with extended family on Thanksgiving, there was one minor problem that had to be accommodated. That is, the dining room table was not big enough for everyone there. And so we had the dining room table and then some card tables set up down at the end. And I thought back to when I was a kid, and we would similarly have the dining room table, which essentially was the big people table, and then the other table that was the little kid table. And that's kind of how it was at this dining room, too. We had all the adults sitting at one table and the kids sitting at another, except there wasn't quite enough room for all the adults at the dining room table. So, so one adult had to sit at the little kid's table. And originally my wife had graciously offered to be that person, but as I, I brought my plates to the table, I quickly realized the dining room table was very crowded. And I don't know if you've noticed, I'm not the most petite of people. So I thought, well, maybe I should sit at the little kid table. There's all kinds of room there. And so I did, and I enjoyed my meal very much. It was wonderful to sit and enjoy my meal in the space that was provided me at this little kid table. But when I was a child, you can bet your bottom dollar, there is absolutely no way I would have ever given up a seat at the adult table. Because I realized, even as a little kid that sitting at the adult table was a status symbol, that I had made it, that I was there. Whereas sitting at the little kid table, well, those were kind of the lessers, the outcasts, not quite as important that they would get to sit at the big people table. That was my mindset then. I realized that there was a divisiveness that occurred there, a distinction being made in how those tables were set, and in how the people sat at those tables. In Corinth, there were similar distinctions being made. They were aware of the distinctions, and Paul, from what he tells us here, tells us that he was aware of them too. It wasn't just at Thanksgiving meals. It was at more important meals than Thanksgiving. It was when they gathered to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We read about this in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. Follow along now as I read from the inspired word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in that Those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is in it. We thank you for the corrections that are in it. We thank you that it calls us to holy living. And we pray that your spirit might work in our hearts even right now. That our hearts might be humbled. Give us ears to hear. And I pray that you might speak through the word preached to each and every one of us today. That we might hear what you would have for us. And that we might be more like Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Sometimes a problem is not really the problem. You know what I mean. Sometimes you you have a problem, but when you look at it, the problem that you see isn't really the problem at its core. It's just a surface issue. It's something that, that looks like it's the problem, but the problem really goes a lot deeper. In Corinth, it, it might appear at first glance that the problem is Well, they've completely messed up how they're doing communion. And indeed they had. But the problem goes a lot deeper than that. The problem in Corinth wasn't just that they they had messed up their communion service. The problem was there was disunity amongst the body. There wasn't the unity that was supposed to exist in Corinth. And sometimes, truth be told... That's the case in every church, isn't it? Every church since then till today, and I suspect every church going forward, there will be times when unity does not reign. There will be times when when there is a disunity that is prevalent. Now, there are all kinds of reasons that this disunity might come about. It might come about because of pride on behalf of certain people. It might come about because of envy. It might be because... People spend too much time talking about one another 
and not enough time talking with one another. It might be because of bitterness and unforgiveness in terms of responding to having been wronged. It could be all of these things. It could be any combination of these things. But the reality is there is disunity in churches. Ultimately, though, I think it happens in Corinth and probably in every other church for a few reasons. We fail to consider certain things. As we look at this text, I think we see that the things that the Corinthians failed to consider and perhaps the things that we often fail to consider are the value of others, the example of Christ, and the response of God. First of all, looking at the value of others, we see Paul says in verse 17 that he has the following instructions. Now, in this phrase, instructions, it's not just kind of like some suggestions that he has. It is an authoritative word. As one commentator puts it, Paul is not offering a few academic comments, but giving a firm directive. And in that directive, he says that that when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. When you come together, when you gather together for worship, he says, it's not necessarily for the better. We're coming together here and we are here at worship and and that is supposed to be a good thing that we would be here but but Paul's saying here that just being here isn't necessarily always good the the locale of our worship isn't the most important thing Jesus said as much to the Samaritan woman when he told her that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him and so we gather here at this place hopefully with that heart with that mind that we would worship in spirit and in truth and expecting it to be a positive experience but for the Corinthians it it was not accomplishing a positive thing and it was actually a negative he says which is all the worse for in the first place Paul says and it's interesting when we read in the first place We think that he is beginning a list. That's naturally to think that. But as we read on, we'll find there is no secondly or as I move on. The first place, he doesn't mean the first of a list of things he's giving. He's saying in the first place as in this is really, really important. Let me underline it and boldface it. Let me me proclaim this in such a way that says to you all, This is of the utmost importance. And he turns his concerns, or he lists his concerns, and they deal with the fact that there are divisions among you, in verse 18, he says. And he goes on to say in verse 20 that when we come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. He says you can call it whatever you want. You can have the trays at the front of the church. You can have the little cups. You can have the bread prepared. You can go through all the ceremonies and the rituals. You can do whatever you want. But he says because of the lack of unity that exists within this church in Corinth, that is not the Lord's Supper that you are partaking of. He 
said, it's impossible to partake of the Lord's Supper unless you have love, unless you have love in your heart instead of disunity, instead of division. It's not coincidental that Paul will soon after this in chapter 13 go on to speak about love at length. We've all heard the love chapter recited at weddings, haven't we? When, when we hear that, that love is, is perfect and wonderful and that it never fails and it, it's patient and it's kind and it's forgiving. And, and we hear these things in the context of, of a husband and a wife and we say, yes, wouldn't it be wonderful if marriage was like that? And that is how we ought to have our marriages. And indeed, we ought to live in such a way within the bounds of marriage. But that is not primarily what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He is talking about relationships within the church. He is talking about how we are as members of one body to relate to one another. We are supposed to be loving. But that's not what was happening at Corinth. You see that in that day, in in antiquity, there were various clubs and associations that would get together for meals. They would join together for these community meals and and they'd often be paid for out of the treasury of the club or the association and they'd gather together and as they did this it was pretty much a common practice in the culture of the day that that the people who were of a higher standing a higher class would get a different amount and a different quality of food than the people who were of a lower class they they were seen as being inferior they're seen as being separate they were essentially placed at the little kids table if you will and this kind of practice had crept into the church you see because the corinthians practiced what was called the the agape feast or the love feast and what this was 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 a meal a full meal that they partook of and, and communion was somehow a, a part of that. And so it was all intertwined together. And what happened as they would do this is they would have church on a Sunday like we did on the Lord's Day. But, but in that day, the culture wasn't such that people didn't have to work on Sunday. Plenty of people had to work on Sunday then. And so they couldn't just have church on a Sunday morning. They'd usually have it on a Sunday evening, actually. After people would get off of course, the rich people were able to knock off a little earlier, right? They, if they owned their own, or ran their own things out, out of their home or what, what have you, they could, they could leave early and they could get there and, and get the best seats. A dining room table in that day in a nice home where they might have had this might have seated 20 or 30 people. And they could get there and get a good seat, a seat of honor. And they could partake of this food and start to eat and to drink and, and enjoy this feast. And then later on, some common laborers might, might trickle in as, as the meal is going on and, and people are filling up. And maybe they got a bite to eat, but probably had to stand out in the atrium area, not sitting at the dining room table. And eventually, we get to a point where all the food is gone and all of the wine has been drunk. And, and in come the slaves who have not been able to get away because of their duties. And they arrive, and there's supposed to be a meal there for them. Not just a meal to feed their body, but a meal to feed their souls. And there is no longer bread for them to eat. There is no longer a cup from which to drink. And we see that These people have been divided off. And in so doing, Paul says that 
you Corinthians despise the church in verse 22. He says you despise the church by creating these divisions, by not being one. In 1 Corinthians 12, the chapter right after this, he will go on to speak about the members of the body and how the various members of the body must be concerned for one another. They must consider one another's well-being. It's not different at all than what we read earlier in Philippians 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That needs to be our mindset within the church. We need to look to the interests of others, not just looking to our plans or our ideas or our well-being, but looking to the interests of others. Now, this doesn't come naturally. It's not an easy thing for us. The world encourages us to compare, and as, as we look at others, it can be easy, can't it, at times, to look at other people and say, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but, but I'm a whole lot better than he is, or I'm a whole lot better than she is. It, it frankly, can be easy for most of us to do that. And perhaps at times that is true, but in God's economy, it's irrelevant. It's kind of as, as if I, I took my children and, and I stood next to them and I proclaimed, you know, here's my children, here am I. They're yeah, four or five, maybe a little bit taller than that, four or five feet tall. I'm six, almost six and a half feet tall. Therefore, I am closer to the sun than they are. Well, indeed, I, I guess I am closer to the sun, you know, by a foot, maybe two. Of course, we're still 93 million miles away from the sun. For them, it's 93 million miles and an extra foot. But for me, it's only 93 million miles. That's how it is with God in our relationship with him. I may be more holy than this this person next to me, or you may be more holy than me, or what have you. But we should not compare ourselves against one another. We should compare ourselves to the standard of a holy God. And each and every one of us is 93 million miles away from the holiness of a holy God. And so it is irrelevant where I stand in comparison to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I stand before a holy God and I am condemned because of that. And that is all that matters. I am a beggar who can only come to the feast at the graciousness of God. It's hard to be humble. It's hard to have that be our our natural instinct. That's not how we're wired. But, but if we remember this truth, it will help us to be humble. It will help us even in the face of when we've been wronged. And let's face it, all of us at some time have been wronged. Sometimes slightly, sometimes greatly. It has happened to all of us. How do we react in those situations? How do, how do we react with humility? How is it possible to do that? Well, it's by remembering that others are loved by God too. Remembering that others, just like me, are sinners. I am a sinner too. We remember that. And then a second thing we need to do, a second thing we need to consider, 
as we consider the example of Christ Jesus. We consider the example of Christ Jesus here in this passage. We see in verse 23 and following the the familiar words of institution for the communion service. We've heard them many times before. They're proclaimed each time we partake of communion. And we see Jesus uh, instituting this meal and Paul says for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you he says I received this from the this isn't just some tradition that I picked up along the way this isn't just something that kind of came about I received this from the Lord he says and now I deliver it to you this is a truth we need to know he says I delivered it to you on the night when Jesus was betrayed. Literally, it's on the night when he was being betrayed. The sense of it grammatically is, is that, that even in the midst of being betrayed, while this was going on, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And it calls our mind back to what the Gospels say about that night. And what else did Jesus do on that night in that room with his disciples? He took a towel and put it around his waist and he got down on his knees with a basin of water and he washed his disciples' feet. He washed the disciples' feet, each and every one of them. He washed the feet of Thomas who would go on to doubt his resurrection. He washed the feet of Peter who would three times deny Christ Jesus. He even washed the feet of Judas who would betray him. That is the example of our Lord, the kind of love that he showed us. It is the kind of love that we are required to show one another. That night after after this all, he, he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This should always be the case. We should always have love for one another, but especially when we come to the Lord's table. It is necessary that we have love for one another. For we are partaking of this meal that calls us to remember the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ which verse 25 we read the the blood of Christ this cup is the new covenant in my blood the new covenant Jesus picks up on these words this phrase this idea from Jeremiah 31 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah So whoever drinks this cup in faith is a member of this new covenant which is ratified by the blood of Christ Jesus. And whoever whoever partakes of this bread in faith is a member of the body of Christ. Whoever partakes of this meal is a member of the covenant of Community, What a blessing that, that God gives us a community to belong to, a body to be a part of, to share in our life with. That is so significant. We must not forget it. We must not forget the idea that this passage calls us to, in the meal, look back and to look forward. We look back and 
Paul says every time we partake of this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death. It's, it's the same phrase Paul normally uses for his uh, heraldic preaching as he proclaims the gospel to people, both evangelistically to those who are not believers. We, that's what we are doing when, when we partake of this meal. If there are those in our midst who do not trust in Christ Jesus for their salvation, if you are here and you do not trust in Christ Jesus for your salvation, you ought not partake in this meal. But rather you ought to observe and observe as we proclaim his death for our sins. But we don't just proclaim it to non-believers. We proclaim it perhaps even more importantly to one another. So that we might be reminded of the gospel. So that we might be reminded of the grace of God. For the grace of God is not just the means by which we enter the kingdom of God. But is the very fuel that empowers us toward kingdom living. So we remind ourselves of the gospel and we do this looking forward until he returns, Paul says, until he returns. For there will be a day when Christ Jesus will return. We live in a world that is sinful, that is broken, where, where relationships are fractured, where, where we are sinned against and where we sin against others. But there is a day when Christ Jesus will return and sin will be no more and there will be perfect peace There will be perfect harmony. There will be perfect unity. And we long for that day. We look forward to that day. And this feast reminds us that that day is coming. When we will sit down at the banquet table of the Lamb. And we will share in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And what a glorious day that is going to be. We look forward to it. D.A. Carson speaks of how when the Jews in exile took part in the Passover meal. They would, at the end of it, proclaim, next year in Jerusalem, next year in Jerusalem, on the fond hope that by the next season, the kingdom as they knew it, the kingdom as they understood it, would be restored, and they would be able to partake of this meal in that restored kingdom. When we partake of this meal, we say, until he comes again. For when he comes again, that kingdom will be restored perfectly And we will share in a most wonderful meal. We need to ask ourselves, though, should we partake of this meal now? Verse 27 tells us that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the blood and the body of the Lord. That's a serious thing. It's a very serious thing. Now, now there was a time when, when most people understood this passage differently. Uh, the old King James Version translated this, whoever partakes unworthily. And it seemed to suggest that people could come to the table not being worthy of coming to the table. And, and I don't think that's exactly the point of this or the thrust of this. Because frankly, we are all unworthy. There is none of us who is worthy to come to the table in and of ourselves. I think what it's talking about is the manner in which we come to the table. The manner in which, and I say that because as I look at this, this passage, that's, that's the, the thrust of it. It's talking about the unity that needs to exist within the church. And, and I think he's saying that if we, we don't have this unity, 
when we come to the table, if we are harboring bitterness in our hearts and divisiveness in our hearts, then we ought not to come to the table because we profane the body and the blood of Christ. That's a serious thing. You think about that. If I were to pull out a small American flag, hand size right now, and, and blow my nose on it and then throw it away, there are many of you that would be very offended at that, and rightly so. Because I would have taken a symbol that carried much weight and much meaning and I would have profaned it with my actions. Treating it as if if it was just common with no meaning behind it at all. If we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, we are profaning the body and blood of Christ. It is not dissimilar than blowing our nose on the flag. And it is even worse. I think that's what he's talking about here. Because he, he, he talks in verses 22 through 29 a lot about eating the body and the bread. Eat body and bread. And he talks about drink, cup, and blood. And, and we see these words paired together. There, there's 12 times in this passage where those words show up and they're in pairs every time. It's always, always eat and drink, the body and blood, the bread and the cup, eat and drink. Every time they're paired together, except one, except one. There's one time when they show up where they're not paired up, and that is in verse 29. It appears three times in that verse alone, and it actually is paired up two of those times. But it says, for anyone who eats and drinks, see they're paired together, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see the idea here. We see body, blood, body, blood, body, blood, body, blood, body, blood, body, nothing. I think we're supposed to understand that when he's talking about the body there, he's talking about something different than he has throughout the rest of the passage. He's talking about the body in the way he normally talks about the body. And the way he talked about the body a chapter earlier when he spoke about one body being the one congregation being one body. The way he talks about it a chapter later when he talks about members of one body needing each other. That's what he's talking about there. When we discern the body, it's discerning that the members who are here in our midst are the very body of Christ gathered together. And we need each other. And we must be concerned about each other. And we must have the mind of Christ Jesus. We consider his example given to us, and we read about that in Philippians 2 as well. And finally, we need to consider the reaction of God. We're running late on time, but I briefly would say we need to consider his reaction to our sin. It's the first Sunday of Advent, Advent which calls us to look forward to Christmas, where we see in the person of Christ Jesus, how God reacted to our sin. He reacted in mercy. He reacted in grace. He reacted in forgiveness. And so we need to understand that. We need to remember that. We need to remember that the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And we need to see how he reacted to sin in Corinth. It talks here in the final verses of today's passage some 
confusing things, and I, I don't have time to go into all of them, but, but he speaks there about how this, this is why many of you are, are weak and ill, and some of you even died, and, and different people think different things about this passage, and we can't go into all the explanations. But what we can derive from it is this one point quite quickly and quite simply. God takes sin very seriously. And a second point, God disciplines us for the well-being of the church and for our own well-being. And so at times, that is what he is doing in our lives. He is disciplining us. We need to be aware of that. We need to be sensitive to that. And we need to trust him in the midst of that. I trust that most of you are here because you love the Lord. If you love the Lord, you are called to love his body, to love his bride. Because God loves the church. He sent his son to die for the church. He took on human flesh for the church and gave up that flesh and and poured out his blood that we might be forgiven of our sins. Consider what God has done for the church. Consider it and ask him to reveal your own sin to your heart. Examine yourself, not examine somebody else, but examine your heart. Ask God to reveal your sin, confess that sin, repent of that sin, and come to the table. I say these things not to scare you off from the table, but to invite you to the table because Christ Jesus wants you to come to the table. But he wants you to get right with him first. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, trust in his grace alone, for it is the only way by which we have forgiveness. Confess, repent, and come. Come to the table. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. See that blessed indeed is the one who takes refuge in him. And if you have taken refuge in Christ Jesus, come and eat. Come and eat at the table of honor. Enjoy this meal. Enjoy this feast. Not because you are worthy, but because he is. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your meal, for your table. We pray that now indeed you would be working by the power of your spirit in each of our hearts, that we might have our sin revealed, that we might confess it to you and repent of it, and that we might fly to the cross where you died for our sins, and that we might know your grace and mercy, washed in your blood, spotless in your righteousness, partaking of your meal at your table, at your request and invitation. It's in the name of Christ Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, that we pray. Amen.